So last week we finished 1 Peter, so we're going to go into 2 Peter. As I have said before, Peter has the Hebrew franchise and Paul has the Gentile franchise. Your reference on that is Galatians 2. So Peter's two letters are written to Hebrews. It's very clear in the first letter and in the second letter he references the letter he wrote to you last time. So I'm assuming that that's the same letter. This letter is different than the one before. I regard the first letter as encouragement and reminder. One of the things about scriptures I was saying on Shabbat is things are always tough. They're different tough in different ages, but they're always tough. And one of the things about scripture is there are lots of places in it which give encouragement. You know, some of Paul's letters are written for no other reason other than to make connection and encourage. They're not teaching any deep theological precepts or anything like that. They're just an encouragement and a reminder of who God is and who Yeshua is. This one is different in that there's something going on that has got Peter upset. In other words, something's going on in the church to which he has addressed this that he is not happy with. It isn't entirely clear what that is. We'll get into it when we get into the letter. But he makes sort of oblique references to Jude and to the end of Genesis, the flood. So it has something to do with people running amok sexually, or it sounds like it does, but it's never really explicated. We'll talk about that when we get there. So... 2 Peter 1. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Yeshua Messiah, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Yeshua Messiah. First thing is obviously he is saying he's an apostle, one of the heavy hitters. He will say in a bit that he was with Yeshua. But he will also say here that their faith is equivalent to his. In other words, they having come to Yeshua and to a knowledge of Yeshua, the fact that they didn't walk with him doesn't make their faith any way inferior to his. Comment was, uh, you might even say that their faith is superior to his, in that Yeshua said that those who believe without having seen are more blessed than those who watched everything happen and so believe. Good point. And then verse 2, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and Yeshua our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the sinful corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. That sentence is almost Pauline. A couple of things about it. First off, God's power grants us everything that we need pertaining to life and godliness. I'm reading a book right now. Not sure I recommend it, but it's interesting. 
it's by a Jew who is also a physicist. And what he's doing is comparing the Kabbalah to quantum mechanics, which, as I say, I'm not sure I recommend it yet. I'm about halfway through it, and, and some of the arguments are, ah, and I'm not a Kabbalist. Okay, I, I, I know enough about Kabbalah to sort of be dangerous, so I'm not claiming to be able to say whether or not it makes sense to a Kabbalist. But one of the things that he says, which is absolutely correct, is that in the Torah, the God who we cannot completely know, and Kabbalistically there's all sorts of stuff that goes on about that, and again, I'm not going into that, and we've said it in a slightly different way, a God that you can completely understand is no God at all. If you could completely understand him, he wouldn't be God. So completely agree with the idea of a God that we don't understand. But the comment he made is he gave us in his word everything that we need to do A, what he requires of us, and B, to live a good life. So this guy is he's not messianic. I think he's Habadnik, but I'm not sure. But he comes to the idea from a different perspective of what Peter comes to it from, which is God has given us everything we need. You don't need to go off looking for some special revelation or anything like that because you have in the book everything you need. And I completely agree with that, both from Peter's perspective, as Peter states that case, and from this random Jewish guy who makes the case otherwise. The comment was she was talking to a lady at a pregnancy center, and this lady, knowing that she was a believer, said, what do you think about where the Red Sea crossing was? And her answer was, don't know. And the answer to that question is not particularly important to me figuring out how I need to live and walk. Should the answer to that ever really become important, somehow I'll find it out. But in the meantime, the fact that it happened is important, and I believe that. The actual physical location is not terribly important. The other thing, while we're on the subject, one of the things that people do, since we have our big monkey brains, is we try and figure things out, and that's okay. There's no requirement whatsoever that you check your brain at the door when you come to God. He gave you a brain, and he expects you to use it, and he gave you the ability to reason, and he expects you to use that. But it can also get you into trouble, because, as I have said many times before, reason is the handmaiden of the emotions, which is to say, the thing that you really want, your big monkey brain will get right on that and work real hard to come up with a really good reason why what you want is the right thing to do. We're really good at that. I certainly am. So one of the things that we do is we extrapolate beyond Scripture to come up with reasons to do things that we want to do but are not mentioned in Scripture. In, in other words, there's all sorts of stuff that is not mentioned in detail in Scripture. It doesn't say anything about whether you should buy a car. There's nothing about that in Scripture. What it does say is you shouldn't covet your neighbor's car. 
says donkey, but we can transpose that to car and we're pretty safe. So it gives you the tools you need without giving you everything that could possibly happen. And that leads people to speculate and go beyond what God says and wind up in some really odd places. As I was trying to figure out what this problem is that Peter is addressing, it seemed sexual in nature. I was looking up, there was a sect of Christianity that was labeled a heresy that set up a commune and turned the place into a sexual free-for-all. And I found them. They were, in fact, a sect, and, and they were radical on the book of Acts, you know, the passage where they held all things in common. So they held all things in common to include wives and children. So the whole thing devolved into a sexual free-for-all. And in order to get from the book of Acts, where they held all things in common, to wife-swapping, which is explicitly forbidden in the Torah, you got to do some serious monkey brain work. And we do. We're very good at figuring out reasons why we should be able to do the things we want to do. So anyway, what Peter is saying is that God gave us in his word everything we need to know. And one of my favorite uh, quotes, I don't remember who said it, but it's not mine, is lots and lots of people read the Bible looking for loopholes. And we're good at finding what we think are loopholes. Well, first and most obvious promise is believing on him as eternal life. That's the first big one that he has granted us. He's also promised us both in the Torah and in the New Testament that living a life according to the precepts of his word will result in a good life. That's another promise. He's also promised that at some point he is going to return and going to set everything right. So there are, there are a number of promises that Yeshua or God have both made. And the other thing, I hadn't thought of it this way until you asked your question. Uh, the other component of that is writing to Hebrews. And these are Hebrews in the exile. There are a number of specific promises, especially in the prophets, and Peter is going to talk about the prophets in a minute. There are a number of promises in the prophets of the regathering of all Israel. So I don't know what specific promises he's talking about there, but there are certainly a great number of promises that God and Yeshua have both made. The other thing I wanted to hit on for just a minute, so I'm still in verse 4, so that through them, you may be, through them, the promises, you may become partakers of the divine nature. What that seems to mean, and interestingly, my Kabbalah physicist is also talking about the same thing. From his point of view, God created the world to create humanity. From my perspective in Genesis, that's absolutely correct. And the reason that God created the world to create humanity is so that humanity could reflect back to him and we have a mutual conversation back and forth. In other words, 
creating something with intelligence that is not him. And because we are made in the image of God, we are made of the nature of God. Everything in Genesis 1 is made after its own kind, seeds after their own kind, that reproduce after their own kind. Everything is made after its own kind in Genesis 1, except us. We are not made after our own kind. We are made after the kind of God. Kind being type. Not we are a kind of God. It's that we are made after the same kind as God is. And of course, God is a kind with one member. Since we're made in his pattern, we then become, if you will, partners in creation. Which is to say, our job is tend the garden. After the fall, our job is to repair the creation. In other words, we're supposed to use our creative ability to set things right. Those are all things that we're supposed to do. And because we are in the image of God, we are of the kind of God, which is to say we are of the same nature of God. And what Peter is saying here is that we are partakers of the divine nature. I don't take that to be, gee, we get to communicate with God. I see that as we are of the same kind as God is. Adam was created after God's own image. Adam's children are created in the image of Adam. In Genesis 4, when they start bearing children, they're born in the image and likeness of their father, Adam. Genesis 5, this is after the unfortunate incident of Cain and Abel. You then have Seth, who was born as a replacement for Abel. That's what Seth means, is replacement. And he is in the image of Adam. And what Peter is saying here is the sacrifice of Yeshua restores something that was lost. Got a couple of things going on. First off, we are made in the image of God. And I take that to mean that we are body, soul, and spirit. God has revealed himself to us as a being in three persons. We are a being in three parts. That's fairly clear. The second thing that happens when Yeshua was sacrificed, died, and then was raised from the dead, one of my favorite riffs is in 1 Corinthians 2, I believe. It says that if the principalities and powers had realized that the Gentiles were going to become also children of God, they never would have crucified him. So what Yeshua did by his sacrifice and resurrection, he gave us all the ability to become children of God. That's the book of Hebrews. The Jews are already members of the kingdom of God. They are God's chosen people. And combination of Ephesians 3 and 1 Corinthians 2 is there was a mystery. And the mystery was that the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ was going to allow the Gentiles to come into the kingdom. That's the mystery that was revealed by the resurrection. And Corinthians says, 
if the principalities and powers had understood what was going to happen, they never would have crucified him. That thing one. Thing two is now the book of Hebrews, which is written to Hebrews. And that says that the sacrifice, resurrection of Messiah and the forgiveness of sins now allows us to become children of God and fellow heirs. Ephesians talks about the Holy Spirit being the guarantee of an inheritance. That's Ephesians 1. The inheritance being kept for us by God in heaven. We have not yet received it, but we have the promise that we will, and the marker is the Holy Spirit. So what I am taking Peter to say here is a couple of things. One, because of what he did, we can become partakers of his nature, which is to say we can step into our role as heirs and children of God and exercise the role as human beings that we were always designed to exercise. Thing two is he has said that we are forgiven of our sins, which means that we have come out of the world of sin and death and into the kingdom of God. It doesn't mean that we can't sin anymore. I'm perfectly able to sin. Do it all the time, not all the time, but I do it quite frequently. So a whole bunch of stuff being said there. All the way to verse 5. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. That's obviously a stair-step progression. And coming back to verse 4, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So what that says is our escape from the world is by virtue of being adopted into the kingdom of God by Christ, okay? or by God, Christ being our brother. So because you have been taken out of that world and adopted into the kingdom of God, you need to make every effort to supplement your faith, which is what got you there, with virtue. Virtue is behavior now. So you had faith, that's what got you into the kingdom. Okay, now you're in the kingdom. Now you need to start exercising virtue. And what that means is you can have faith and be in the kingdom and perhaps not be terribly virtuous. And so what he's doing here is exhorting you, now that you're in, cultivate virtue and supplement your faith with virtue, and then supplement virtue with knowledge, which is to say, study. Study the scriptures. Learn about God from the perspective of Yeshua. Again, you notice he's writing to Hebrews. So these are people who know the Tanakh, or at least you can assume they do, Peter does. So what he's saying is there is new information now based on what Yeshua did, and you need to continue to study the word and integrate what Yeshua did into your understanding of Scripture or change your understanding of Scripture to accommodate what he did. And then knowledge was self-control. That one's pretty obvious. In other words, we all have self-control issues. We all get tempted. I certainly do. And self-control is the antidote to temptation. 
antidote's not quite the right word because there's no antidote for temptation. It's the way you deal with temptation and one hopes you overcome it. And then steadfastness is you keep on keeping on. In other words, you are not unstable as water. And steadfastness with godliness. In other words, you are partakers of the divine nature. Act like it. And godliness with brotherly affection. And God is the personification of love. So godliness then is augmented with brotherly love and brotherly affection with love. So you see you've got a a stair step and a progression. You said that there are eight steps in there. Eight is the number of new beginning. Um, And as we said, the list of characteristics is also common to all successful societies. Look at the Japanese samurai culture, honor and steadfastness and all of those things. So a lot of these are human characteristics and what Galen said is faith is the first step and it's your entry to a path which now that you have your feet on the right path, that path leads to ultimately love. And the comment that you started to make, or at least I think you made, but I'm going to make if you didn't, is one of the things that has happened with much of Christianity with its loss of emphasis on the Torah is everybody just jumps to love. And what that winds up being is without standards and mush, and it becomes an emotion instead of an action. I've often said that love is not an emotion, it's an action. One of the things I said to my wife very early in our marriage, the way you know that I love you is I got up this morning, I went to work, and I came home, and I brought home a paycheck, and I intend to do it tomorrow, and ever thereafter. So what we have done is conflated this gooey emotional love with biblical love. And biblical love is action, doing stuff, feeding your neighbor, clothing him, helping him out, getting his ox out of the ditch. All those kinds of things are expressions of love. Unfortunately, much of Christianity has lost that concept. Not intellectually. I mean, you'll find preachers that will say pretty much what I just said, but lots of people don't do it. You know, the comment was God is love and yada yada. God is love. But the converse of that is not true. Love is not God. You tend to think God is love and you think of an equation like in mathematics and you can switch it around and it still means the same thing. That's not the case here. God is love, yes. Love is not God. All the way down to verse 8. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Yeshua Messiah. So notice he says effective and fruitful. He doesn't say it keeps you from sitting around on your blessed assurance and making sure you go to heaven. He expects you to be effective. He expects you to be fruitful. He expects you to do stuff. And as you have these, the stair step of virtues under your belt, you will become more and more effective in the kingdom. Verse 9. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. In other words, if you don't 
take pains to cultivate these virtues, you wind up going back to where you were when you were found. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Yeshua Messiah. What I take that to mean, it's sort of the cliche in Christianity that you go down to Skid Row and you find some bum and you offer to buy him a meal if he comes to Christ. And it says the sinner prayer right there and you buy him a meal and, and you never see him again. So as far as you're concerned, depending on your theology, you've saved his soul from hell, but his body's still in the gutter somewhere. You don't know where. It's sort of a cliche of rescue missions and Salvation Army and all these organizations that exist to reach down into the lowest parts. And God bless them. Don't get me wrong. I am not knocking these people. They are doing God's work. They are doing good. But it is a matter of fact that they have people that will show up and go to hallelujah at the meeting and then next day be drunk in the gutter. So what Peter is saying here is, yes, your faith has gotten you into the kingdom of God. But now that you're in, there are things that you need to do to stay in. You've got to develop these virtues. You've got to walk in it. You've got to do all of these things, and you will A, be effective, and B, you will ensure that you stay in the kingdom. And again, I've said to you many times, I am not a Calvinist. I firmly believe that if you have a choice about whether to get in, you have an equal choice about whether to stay in. And what Peter is saying here is if you don't follow up on your salvation decision, you are going to wind up where you were before. And that's what I take it to mean, making your election sure. If you don't follow up and you don't start developing these virtues and so forth, you may wind up where you were before. Because he says, if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Which indicates to me that if you don't, you can. 11. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Yeshua Messiah. Verse 12. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. So again, he's writing to Hebrews, and the virtues he's talking about are certainly Torah. And what he's doing is he's saying, you guys know this, but I am writing by way of reminder. Remember, we started off with saying a lot of scripture is simply by way of reminder and encouragement. Verse 13, I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Yeshua Messiah made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. So he recognizes that he is coming to the end of his earthly life. And one of the reasons for his writing this down and sending it in a letter, as opposed to in a sermon, 
is so that it will be available to them for continual encouragement and reminder after his natural death. We're sort of going to change gears here. So we'll pick it up at verse 16 next time, God willing. Et a